Hey, y'all, how's it going? Welcome to the show. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Well, I think I began having an allergy attack the moment the show started. Uh, I'll blame the juniper trees. It's early spring here in Austin this year. Uh, hey, man. So, yeah, welcome to the show. It's uh, The Scott Horton Show. Uh, basically, I got a chip on my shoulder about the world empire. So, my job is uh, trying to convince you to hate it. Which should be pretty easy, assuming I can get you to pay attention for a minute. Then, uh, at the end of hearing the things I say, you'll go, Yeah, of course, he's right. Because I'm so right. Yeah. Alright, well, um... I'm very happy that today I'm going to get a chance to interview Janet Reitman, who wrote this thing for Rolling Stone called Inside Gitmo, America's Shame. Well, one of many. And um, so we're going to talk about Obama's last year in office. And uh, just what may or may not happen with the Guantanamo Bay Gulag. The one that George Bush said he wanted to close. The one that Jeb Bush was uh, trying to demagogue and attack Barack Obama for letting people out of there the other day. When his brother let 500 and something people out of there. You know, after falsely imprisoning them. But the whole thing is just such a ridiculous farce from any angle that you take it. I mean, it's just... Christ's sake, man. And the fact that they put it in communist Cuba, right off the bat, ought to tell you a little something. But anyway, so that's coming up on the show. Janet Reitman, Inside Gitmo, one of America's many, many shames. Fifteen years of pain and suffering outside the rule of law. Why can't we close the prison at Guantanamo Bay? That's coming up on the show. Uh-oh, hang on, I got a sniffle. Boy, that was a little more than a sniffle. Also, guess what? Brad Hoff. I like Brad Hoff. He writes at LevantReport.com. Got smarts, too. And he's got a new piece uh, running at LevantReport.com. It'll be running on Antiwar.com tomorrow. I think we're holding it a day, right? We had just too many originals to run. Yeah, we're holding it a day. It's running tomorrow at Antiwar.com. And the deal with it is that uh, it's all about Hillary's emails. Newly released. Another batch. And man, Brad Hoff, he just dug through them and broke story after story after story. I think five of them in one article. Maybe six. Very important stuff from uh, Brad Hoff coming up on the show today. Oh man, you know what? I forgot to write up a blog entry and a tweet about this show being a show today. That's one of the things I'm uh, supposed to do. All right, I'll tell you what I'll do. While I'm writing up that blog entry, I will babble mostly coherently, probably, 
about this show, Making a Murderer. Have you seen Making a Murderer? Uh, if you've read anything about it, it, you know, the spoilers right there. It's in the first thing. I'll just go ahead and tell you. It's, I don't think I'm giving away the surprise or anything to tell you. It's the story of a man who was set up by the cops, framed up, and falsely convicted of rape or an attempted rape for which he served 18 years. I love that. Served. For which he was kidnapped and imprisoned in a cage like an animal for 18 years until finally a DNA test proved that the actual rapist in town who all the other cops knew did it all along was the guy that did it. Surprise, surprise. And then when he got out and he started suing the pants off of the cops that framed him up, and it started to look like they bent the law so bad in framing him that they would not be protected by insurance. They framed him up for a murder. You know, that way they wouldn't have to pay him the $36 million. And, yeah, pretty much simple as that. There's more to it than that, but that's a big, that's basically the deal. And anyway, so here's what I think, well, there's so many parts of this story. And, you know, I'm trying to read up on, I'm going to read the trial transcripts, I think. I want to know more about it. And from more than the point of view of just the filmmakers. And I want to interview the filmmaker. Or, uh, plural, the filmmakers. Um, you know, I don't know. But here's, I think, uh, an overwhelming kind of impression that I got from the show. That I hope that other people noticed, too which is that this is how they do business. This is the American so-called criminal justice system in real life. This isn't Matlock, and it's not law and order. This is how it actually is. And it's a lot different than law and order, isn't it? And, you know, you don't have to be a community college dropout like me. I didn't flunk out. I had straight A's at the time. Uh, you don't have to be a community college. Oh, good. Mark Thornton's going to do this show today. Cool. Um, you know, genius like myself To begin, at least, to understand the difference between inductive and deductive logic. And my point is basically simple. That all cops in all 20,000-something police departments in America, all of them, they are all a bunch of conspiracy kooks. Now, usually, you know, if somebody's murdered, it's not that much of a mystery, right? I don't know. Uh, I don't know if that's right, usually or not. Um. But when it's debatable and the evidence is sketchy, this can be a real trick. This can be a real problem. And uh, all I mean is, you see what they do. They start with, and never mind, outright framing them up. How about everybody went along with outright framing them up because they believe in it? You start with your conclusion, and then you look for things that make your conclusion seem right. And if you do that, then you can basically prove anything. You can make 
something that sounds like a convincing case for virtually any explanation for something that happened. Deductive logic, on the other hand, says let's eliminate all possibilities. Let's attack all possibilities with every bit of argument we can come up with until there's only the truth left standing. And my point is that the cops don't have to outright frame up somebody to just get it wrong. Once they decide this is the guy we're prosecuting, that's it. That's it. You know, this first rape conviction is the perfect example of that. Where they show the picture to the lady that they drew of the guy that they want her to identify. Then they ask her to go to the lineup, and she picks the guy from the lineup and matches him, not to her rapist, but to the picture that the cops just showed her. And they even have the quote of the prosecuting attorney. I don't think his defense lawyer picked up on it. The prosecuting attorney says, and do you recognize the man from the lineup in the courtroom today? He doesn't say, do you recognize the man who raped you in the courtroom today? Because that's not the question. And this happens every day in every jurisdiction in America. Innocent people go to prison over this kind of crap. Hey, Al Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. If this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. Hey, all Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MasterSamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MasterSamuraiTech.com. All right, y'all, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Yeah. So, hey, man, this is really important. Uh, Russia security paper. NATO expansion a security threat. Sees NATO eastwards, eastward expansion as a problem. This is uh, Jason Ditz at news.antiwar.com. News.antiwar.com. The latest Russian national security strategy paper, newly revised because of the regime change in Ukraine two years ago, that is the American one there, has been released and signed by President Putin. Though Ukraine is obviously a big change, the focus, as ever, is on NATO. The strategy paper sees NATO as taking, quote, counteraction against Russian attempts to maintain an independent domestic and foreign policy and sees NATO's continued eastward expansion as turning it into a growing external threat, quote, unquote, external threat to the Russian Federation. NATO's recent expansion has centered around the Balkans, with Albania and Croatia both joining in 2009. 
Russia's bigger concerns are efforts by former Soviet states Georgia and Ukraine to seek membership status, which would add greatly to the common border between Russia and NATO member nations. Growing animosity centering on Ukraine has had NATO predicting an imminent Russian invasion of Eastern Europe and dramatically increasing their military presence along the Russian frontier. Though presented as defensive deployments, with NATO members openly talking about a war with Russia, this escalation is being treated as a growing threat. First of all, sigh. Second of all, jeez, uh, yeah, you see what's going on here, right? It's so easy, isn't it, I guess, for anyone to just pick a fight and then blame whoever is fighting back for starting it. The people who are already on your side, in this case, the people who are from America, they're going to believe your side and side with you anyway. And so, it doesn't matter what's true, what just matters that the narrative is somewhat coherent, and then... And I'm being generous with somewhat there. But, man, here, let's see what happens if... Well, now, because it'll include too much stuff, but... I was going to do a Google search for Russian aggression. Uh, when Jason writes here that NATO has been predicting an imminent Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, he could have finished that sentence. They have been predicting that for two years, and it hasn't happened yet. They have claimed that it has happened. Couldn't be less than ten times. Maybe more than a dozen times. They claimed, Russian infantry has invaded Ukraine. Here they come. Thousands of Russians. Never happened. The New York Times even had to retract a David Sanger report, if you could believe that. Where he goes, look, pictures of Russians. And then the next day, oh, uh, yeah, these pictures were taken of Russians inside Russia. So, hmm. David Sanger. Anyway. Here's the thing that you need to know. Well, here's one thing that you might need to know. Uh, believe it or not, it's a Thomas Friedman article in the New York Times from 1998. From 1998, it's an interview with George Kennan. Who is George Kennan? George Kennan is a former State Department official. I don't know if he was ever the Secretary of State. But anyway, he was very high-level... Uh, I guess Rockefeller guy in the State Department back in the Cold War at the beginning of it. And he wrote an article in 1947 that was just signed by X, although I guess everybody with power knew it was him at the time, and who said, hey, we need to contain the Soviet Union, justifying a world empire in the name of containing the USSR. And really... You know, it was Nietzsche and others with more of a rollback policy who had greater sway, but, you know, ultimately. But you could very well argue that it was George Kennan that invented the policy of containment uh, for the Cold War. And the thing of it is that, uh, so in other words, he has the credibility to make the warning that he made. And again, this is back in time. This is in 1998 when Bill Clinton was expanding NATO. 
and George Kennan told Thomas Friedman, you know, told us, told the New York Times that it was a huge mistake for the United States to expand the NATO alliance. After all, as is so well documented by Jack Matlock and others, the uh, Bush senior administration promised Gorbachev and his government that the NATO alliance, the NATO military alliance, would never spread even one inch east of Germany. That was part of the negotiations that led to the dissolution of the USSR and the end of world communism. Um, so anyway, here he is at 94 years old. Thomas Friedman says he's a bit frail, but his mind at 94 is as sharp as ever. So I called him to ask him what the hell was going on with NATO. And here's what George Kennan told Thomas Friedman. Quote, I think it is the beginning of a new Cold War. I think the Russians will gradually react quite adversely, and it will affect their policies. I think this NATO expansion is a tragic mistake. There was no reason for this whatsoever. No one was threatening anybody else. Again, NATO is a military alliance. It's not a social club, although it's that too. This expansion would make the founding fathers of this country turn over in their graves, Kennan says. We have signed up to protect a whole series of countries, even though we have neither the resources nor the intention to do so in any serious way. NATO expansion was simply a light-hearted action by a Senate that has no real interest in foreign affairs. What bothers me is how superficial and ill-informed the whole Senate debate was, added Kennan. I was particularly bothered by the references to Russia as a country dying to attack Western Europe. Don't people understand? Our differences in the Cold War were with the Soviet communist regime. And now we are turning our backs on the very people who mounted the greatest bloodless revolution in history to remove that Soviet regime. And Russia's democracy is as far advanced, if not farther, as any of the countries we've just signed up to defend from Russia, said Kennan. It shows so little understanding of Russian history and Soviet history. Of course, there is going to be a bad reaction from Russia. And then the NATO expanders will say that we always told you that is how the Russians are. But this is just wrong. Go and read it. Now a word from X. Kennan Friedman, New York Times, May 2nd, 1998. You hate government? One of them libertarian types? Or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers? Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. 
Get the War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. We're live here on the Liberty Radio Network every weekday from noon to 2 Eastern. All right. Three great interviews today. Brad Hoff coming up, Mark Thornton, but first, Janet Reitman. And uh, she is uh, writing here for Rolling Stone, a contributing editor there at Rolling Stone. She's the author of the book Inside Scientology, the story of America's most secretive religion. That sounds interesting. And she's written for uh, tons of magazines, it says here. In her bio, uh, Inside Gitmo, America's Shame, 15 Years of Pain and Suffering Outside the Rule of Law, and uh, Why Can't We Close the Prison at Guantanamo Bay? Good question in the subtitle there. Welcome to the show, Janet. How are you? Good, thanks. I appreciate you joining us on the show today. Uh, great work on this piece here. Thanks. And so let's just dive in, I guess, to the trials themselves. Um, I think that's pretty much where you start uh, the article as well, is kind of the story in the middle of just the absurdity of the process, the current military process, for prosecuting the men accused of masterminding and organizing the September 11th attack on the United States. Uh, By the way, for future historians, this is being recorded in January of 2016. Okay, so go ahead. Um, yes, we are about to start the, the 15th year of Guantanamo, believe it or not, um, at the end of January. And, um, well, the, the, the first thing to point out is there has not been a trial yet. Um, they, these are pre-trial hearings that have gone on and on now for a number of years and um, are mired in all kinds of delays and pre-trial motions and um none of which have anything to do with any of the merits of the actual case. And they will uh, quite likely continue for the next four or five years. I mean, I, what I understand is this could go on until 2020 before any of these guys could actually, um, you know, begin an actual prosecution. Mm. And, and I'm sorry, go ahead. You know, and, it, and it's, you know, the, 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 the whole thing is it's taking place, uh, at the moment it's taking place offshore. And... Um, you know, if 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 and when Guantanamo were to close, they would then have to move them, I guess, to the United States. And I'm not sure how that would work, because at this point, the whole idea of having federal prosecutions for um, KSM and, and the accused 9-11 plotters was, you know, taken off the table in, in 2010. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, you know, this was um, a great... Uh, Goal of the early Obama administration and and, uh, and Attorney General Eric Holder to try KSM in New York uh, in federal court, mm-hmm. and you know this was and there were lots of New Yorkers that that supported that, you know, including myself as, as well. That would have been very cathartic for people in the city. It would have been um, it would have provided a sense of closure for people, I think. But um, you know, for a variety of political reasons, you know, mostly it was. Um, untenable, and so they have uh, turned to the military commission system, which is, you know, takes place out of sight of the American public and out of mind of the American public. And um, but most of all, nothing has happened. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of, and you know, it, it's just it's a it's a comical almost experience because literally nothing has happened. And you go down there, and 
nothing. You know, now, is nothing it literally after. legally impossible now, or just politically impossible now, to go well, back legally, to trying to prosecute them in a civilian court? Well, I mean, according, you know, the Congress has passed um, in the in the NDAA, the, mm-hmm. the National Defense Defense Authorization Bill, um, for the past four or five years, it it is it is legally not permissible to bring anybody from Guantanamo to the United States for any reason, which is why, you know, there's been these discussions about whether President Obama would would um, go around the Congress, whether he would, you know, do an executive order, whether he would try to, to figure out some other way to close Gitmo and bring people um, there to the U.S. by skirting around that law, because Congress has banned it outright. They are not, you know, they are not allowed in the United States for, for any reason. And um, so, so it, it renders the whole situation kind of moot at this mm-hmm. point. Um, there are some other kinds of, I guess, some fixes for this that some attorneys who are mar- much uh, more schooled in all of this than I am in terms of legalities uh, have suggested. I mean, there, you know, a lot of the sort of defense-type attorneys will come up with all kinds of ways that the president might be able to close Gitmo. But um, but in terms of, you know, convincing the Congress, it doesn't seem likely, and, and it certainly is banned in law. Mm-hmm. And now, so I want to go back to what you were saying about how we're still only in year 10 or whatever it is of the pretrial motions, and we still have five more to go, whatever, that kind of deal. And uh, so that reminded me of what I had been instructed previously by the other Scott Horton, the heroic international anti-torture human rights lawyer. Right. About how, well, see, the American Republic has been around for a while, and we have a rule of law. We're in a federal courtroom. All the precedent is not just set, but it's all known like the back of their hands by everybody in charge. And so, um, and, and it's taken 200 years to refine the system to the way it is now. Whereas in Guantanamo Bay, they're making it up as they go along. And so, you basically couldn't have imagined how many open questions there are. And I think the one example was Khali Sheikh Mohammed said, I want to wear a camouflage hunting vest to court so he can pretend he's some kind of general in a war instead of some scumbag criminal. And they said, yeah, okay, because there wasn't any rule that said, hell no, you're going to wear a jumpsuit. It wasn't already defined. So, sure, you can dress up in fatigues, KSM, to come to your hearings. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, just one example. And then as you're saying, there could be years more of this ahead. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing that I found really interesting about um, this piece of the Guantanamo story is that, you know, from from my understanding, when um, when these guys, we'll call them the 9-11-5, which is what they call them, right? So when they were arraigned formally under the new military commission system. This is the Obama military commission system in um, 2012 is when they were formally arraigned. And so that's when these hearings all began. Right. And they had, though, since I guess around 08, they had death penalty um, lawyers because, you know, in the in the late Bush administration, they decided they were going to try to put these guys on trial. They were going to charge them with capital crimes. And so they were um, they were given death penalty lawyers. And these death penalty lawyers were um, and are just absolutely determined to litigate every single tiny aspect of their case. In order to save their clients' life, sure. and so you know, it, 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 I, you know, my what my understanding was was that you know, were these military lawyers 
um, I think the government's assumption was that the military lawyers would just sort of salute and, and get this done quickly. The military lawyers, the JAG lawyers I've interviewed, said absolutely not. I mean, the JAG lawyers are like actually heroic, completely heroic, because they buck their own system. They're actually they're bucking their own United States government mm. to defend, you know, accused terrorists. And it makes them, um, you know, highly unpopular, I think. Uh, within the military, but yeah, it um, makes them exactly the same as John Adams, the great American patriot who created our country and defended those accused in the Boston massacre. Right, right, exactly. Except they're not; they're viewed as the enemy. You know, they really—I mean, their view of themselves is that they are seen as the enemy. And um, and you know, they, I mean, I I I think that they they are. Um, they're not treated very well. They're looked at suspiciously. You know, and um, but I think they're you know they're quite heroic. Um, these these officers who are defending these guys, but um, but regardless, you know, your point is they are making up every single tiny aspect of the law as they go along, which they have to. I mean, this is not just like for their health. This is part of the the you know litigation process, right? Mm-hmm. And um, but it's delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. And you know, I actually did not attend, personally attend, um, this 9-11 hearing. I attended a different guy's hearing. All right, you know um, what, I'm sorry, I let mean, me stop you right there, and we'll pick it up right there on sure. the other side of this break with Janet Reitman. She wrote this great piece, Inside Gitmo for Rolling Stone. Hey, Al Scott here. If you've got a band, a business, a cause, or campaign, and you need stickers to help promote, check out the thebumpersticker.com at thebumpersticker.com. They digitally print with solvent ink. So you get the photo quality results of digital with the strength and durability of old-style screen printing. I'm sure glad I sold the BumperSticker.com to Rick back when. He's made a hell of a great company out of it. And there are thousands of satisfied customers who agree with me, too. Let the BumperSticker.com help you get the word out. That's the BumperSticker.com at the BumperSticker.com. Hey, all Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it tastes good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrensCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world, all specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrensCoffee.com. Use promo code SCOTT and you get free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com. All right, kids, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. I'm talking here with Janet Reitman. She wrote this really important piece. I don't know, it's five or 10,000 words or something. Uh, great piece of literature here. Inside Gitmo, America's Shame. Well, one of many. Um, and I just wanted to read this quote real quick before we get back to it where uh, Guantanamo overall is by now nothing more than an elaborate theater piece. Quote, if Abraham Lincoln rode down there on a unicorn, I don't think I'd even think twice, says the Navy commander, about just the absurdity of the entire situation down there. And where we had to go out at the break, you were about to, I'm pretty sure, describe the absurdity of the hearing that you witnessed when you were down there, Janet. Well, I mean, one of the things, you know, for example... I showed up, um, I went down to, to attend a hearing of a guy named Hadi Alaraki, who pretty much no one, right, has ever heard of, and he has nothing to do with 9-11 or any other, you know, major act of terrorism. He is an, an, uh, a Taliban commander who has, um, you know, like a lot of uh, people, 
been somehow linked in with al-Qaeda, whether or not he was a member of al-Qaeda, is very, very sketchy. Um, in other words, you know, al-Iraqi, he, he was an Arab in he Afghanistan. Hadi al-Iraqi is an Iraqi uh-huh. who moved to Afghanistan in the, in the early 1990s. Good enough for me. Up, you know, fighting <laughs> yeah. with the Taliban. And, but as a non-Afghan, um, uh, you know, is, uh, is, is, you know, alleged to have been some kind of a liaison, uh, with Al-Qaeda and all of this is, you know, up in the air. But, um, but, you know, he is not accused. He's accused of, of very sort of traditional types of war crimes. And, um, you, you know, that we might see even as, um, as, as making him a kind of legitimate combatant. I mean, a, a person who is serving in, the armed forces, in a sense, of his country, uh, his adopted country, under the then government of that country, which was the Taliban. Now, whether or not we, we, you know, respect that or not, that was, that is an argument that this was a legitimate government, that these guys were, were serving, essentially. But the United States does not recognize that, and um, we consider anybody who fought with the Taliban as being um, an unprivileged enemy, as they call them, belligerent. Mm. So they're not saying, they're not accusing him of murdering civilians or anything like that, just being part of of it. Yes, no, 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 yeah, murder, well, that's part of his sort of war crimes. Oh, well. They accuse him of murdering civilians as part of, you know, not in a 9-11 sense, not in a terrorism sense, but in a kind of, you know, fog of war sense, a kind of, you know, this is a civil war that they were fighting. Um, so, yes, there were civilians, there were, there were U.S., but U.S. forces were, um, or U.S. and other foreign forces, I think, are sort of the more dominant aspects of it. I mean, there are several. There's a long, long charge sheet. It's like 35 charges. So, But the point of it is is that he's not a 9-11 guy. Um, when we think of Gitmo, when we think of um, the prosecutions of Gitmo, we think only of the 9-11 guys. There's only 10 people who have who are facing any kind of legal proceedings out of over a hundred of them now at this point, and several of those people, three of them, are just dealing with plea agreements and um, and one challenge to to a conviction. The others, there's only seven of them that are currently in in a trial or a pretrial process, and of that group, only Hadi Al Iraqi is uh, is kind of moving towards something in a sort of sense. Um, because he is not facing the death penalty, so he doesn't have those kinds of challenges, and um, and you know, and he has, in some ways, it's seen as a little bit more um, of a straightforward situation because these are sort of more traditional war crimes, and this is a war crime war crimes tribunal, mm-hmm. right? This is very complicated, by the way. I mean, it took me a long, long time to figure all of this out and sort of understand how to write. But about your point it. about so him, is I hope that... I'm making sense to you because it's not sure. easy. To well, I mean, what I want to ask you is your point about this guy is the absurdity that he's at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, rather than not that he's some innocent guy uh, who just got rounded up like some innocent sheep herder that Bush already sent home. But right. this is somebody who very well may have done something. But why is he in Cuba instead of in prison in Afghanistan? Well, no, I mean, my the no, that's not really the why. You know, why would he be in prison in Afghanistan? I mean, he was, he is, you know. Well, you're saying that was where he committed his war crimes, right? He committed, yeah, but I mean, that wouldn't have been a, I mean, we didn't have a, you know, there's, that's not, we consider him as a war criminal. Okay, then I'm not clear on your point about this particular guy. I mean, the point of it, the, the whole point of it is, is that there's only a handful of people that are even facing trial. The point of the whole story, to be honest with you, is that 
you know, these trials, however monumental it will be to see if and when it happens, the 9-11 case, you know, that's not what Gitmo at this point is really about. Gitmo at this point is about warehousing a bunch of other guys that you've never heard of before, a number of whom will never be charged with a crime, will never be tried, and um, have been there in, in a kind of purgatorial state for, for, in many cases, for 14 years now. That's what Guantanamo is. That's the, that's the aspect of it that's, you know, highly un-American. I mean, in terms of Hadi al-Iraqi, you know, he's, he's a person who, you know, we don't really know anything about. The military has spent a tremendous amount of money, you know, in, just in trying to try the guy. Um, we actually wound up flying down to attend the hearings for him that were supposed to be like a week, and then it was shortened to three days, and then the trip was delayed by a day for reasons that were never explained to any of us, and we all sort of turned around and went back home again and turned around and came back the next day to fly down to Guantanamo. (laughs) Who knows what what cost to the United States taxpayer? And, um, you know, for essentially what what was a 45-minute hearing. And, you know, that's, that's that's what goes on. That's what goes on. You fly down to Gitmo for 45 minutes, essentially, or an hour. You spend three days there, though. And um, there's just there's a lot of delay, and a lot of this doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But, um, but you know, the other aspect of it that, that I think is, is, you know, really dramatic is that there are people there that you don't know anything about and that have been there for a long time, and we're not even sure why in many cases. Yeah, they just came out with one a a week or two ago saying, oh, yeah, this guy, he was mistaken identity. We've been holding him all this time. Right. I mean, maybe Andy Worthington knew of the guy or whatever, but the rest of us have never heard of him. Right. Uh, right. I want to get back to what you were saying earlier, too, about the power of the president to close this place. You know, he can start a war in Libya without Congress, but he can't order his troops on Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, to move? Of course he can. And and what can Congress do about it other than impeach him and remove him from office? Uh, but if he wants to if he wants to say the prison is closed, put those men on ships and sail them to Florida and the DOJ better and the Bureau of Prisons better meet him at the shore, then what's Congress going to do about it? I mean, that's certainly an argument, you know, that they a lot of military people will, you know, say, military defense attorneys will say, you know, he can, as commander-in-chief, say, tell the military, we, I would like this prison closed, you're going to close it, and then we're going to move these guys to the United States. But it's obviously, it's much more complicated than that. It's, there's, you know, very complicated politics involved in all of that. You know, Congress has passed this law. Um, there are some uh, lawyers who, uh, an analyst who, who would challenge whether the, that law is really whether Congress really has the power to do this, to bar these people from coming to the U.S. Which, I mean, by the way, did they have I'm a veto-proof majority for this legislation? Is that why he keeps signing legislation that says he can't do this? No, he, he signs... I mean, this is, this is part of the larger defense spending bill that he signs every year. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's, yes, it's, it's widely unpopular. The idea of bringing Gitmo prisoners to the United States is seen as, you know, a hugely risky... I mean, this is all, by the way, in my view, hugely overblown. I mean, the risk of of any of these people after 14 years, I really, you know, I don't know. But but the Republicans have made it a talking point for many, many years that these are the worst of the worst, quote-unquote. And there's a tremendous amount of fear, and it's, 
you know, used and exploited very well. And um, as soon as it comes up that, wait, wait, we might close Gitmo, you know, you have Paul Ryan or someone else saying, no, 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 you know, these mm. these are the worst of the worst. And then you have you know, governors and, and, and representatives from various states saying, you know, not in my backyard, mm-hmm. you know, literally. And so it becomes this whole political football, well, where are you going to send them? Nobody wants them. Are they the going to go, is, where are you going to, are you going to build something for them? What are you going to do with them? Well, you know? Obama could have done this in 2009. And I remember there was a yeah. Washington Post story, I believe, which uh, Glenn Greenwald had written up as well at salon.com, where they had all these quotes from the senators saying they were geared up, ready to go, mm-hmm. but they had no support from the president of the United States to push this agenda whatsoever. And they had completely believed the hype during the campaign, and they thought this mm-hmm. is for sure something we're doing. And he had signed the executive order on his first full day in office, and then he did nothing to pursue it whatsoever and left them sticking their neck out, and so they decided to drop it. And that was back in 2009. So, you know, yeah, maybe if he had made a serious effort then, things would have been different. I think there was a great opportunity that was missed at that point um, and for a variety of reasons. But I, I just it just was not ultimately a priority, um, the priority that it had made, been made out to be. And by, you know, within that year, it, it slipped and slipped and slipped down on the priority list. And then by 2010, when the Republicans took the Congress, it just then it it was not able to become the priority that it, that I think the president wanted it to be. So, and it's a, it's a shame, but yes, he had, he had a year. Um, There were a long series of, of, of mistakes (laughs) or, or missteps, shall we say that, Mm. um, that were made during that time that, you know, made closing Guantanamo increasingly difficult. Mm. And, um, you know, Charlie Savage and, and Dan Clademan are two, really wonderful authors who have written books that really go into great depth about this. I will plug both of their books, um, which were very helpful to me. But, uh, you know, there's, there's, been, there's quite a lot of, of literature out there on, on that, exactly what happened during that year of 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my story is not about that, by the way. My story is about what is happening right now right. in 2016, right. after all that time. So. Well, and something that's worth mentioning here, I'm sorry, I'm recording you into the break mm-hmm. here for just one minute, but uh, it didn't get mentioned, but it, it deserves some kind of prominence that at least some of the prisoners were tortured down there at Guantanamo Bay yeah. in the early years, and that there is ongoing, you know, human tragedy in the form of the various hunger strikes and uh, suicides and attempted suicides and so forth of these people who are being locked up without charges for life. Just even being, you know, going through a process of review where they, you know, these are people who've been there since, say, you know, 02 or 03. And then, you know, they're reviewed in 2009 or 10 or, you know, and they're, and they're said, okay, you know what, you're cleared to go. And then they don't leave. So when they're going to leave? You know, this happened with a lot of the guys from Yemen. There's a huge number of them that are from Yemen and they can't return to Yemen. This is also part of the NDAA. They can't return to Yemen. There's several countries that, you know, they will not be able to be transferred back to, and Yemen is one of them, Syria is another one. But, you know, you have a number of them. I mean, I think a, a, a large majority are Yemeni, and they can't go home. And so they have to find a country, a host country, to accept them. And, you know, as a number of um, really, you know, very good recent reports have noted, the Defense Department, this is what I heard in my reporting as well, that the, the DOD has, has you know, uh, had a long pattern of trying to block these transfers. And so you have these guys that for one reason or another will have their transfer 
um, you know, or release delayed. And they'll just sit there and languish. And I mean, that is an unending sense of torture. If you can imagine that, you're told, I mean, that's, that is truly, you know, I hate to use that word Kafkaesque, but it actually really is. I mean, that is, you know, you can go, but you can't go. And that's been the situation for, you know, for, for these people who are considered the low level. These are people who, who may not, you know, have done really anything other than be a foot soldier or something like that. Right. Um, you know, then you have the guys who, like, you know, Hadi al-Iraqi and particularly, you know, KSM and the others and, and another group of them, there's about 14, who are considered high-value detainees, and these are people who were in um, uh, CIA detention initially. And so they came to Guantanamo between 06 and 08 from the CIA black sites and, you know, all underwent something. I mean, uh, to what degree... You know, they were all tortured. You can read it in the torture report, but um, it goes into quite a lot of depth about a number of what, of them. But, you know, these guys are, are have, have endured a tremendous amount, and they're just, you know, locked away in a secret prison, actually, that none of us can see or uh, their attorneys can't even talk about it or else, you know, like without risking their security clearance. And... Um, you know, we don't even know, we didn't even know it existed officially until a few years ago. And, um, and that's where they, they live. And, and they, these are the people that, um, will likely never, um, be released, you know, unless some kind of deal is brokered. All right. With that, I'll have to leave it short. I'm sorry, cause I have more questions for you. Great piece of journalism here. I really appreciate your time on the show, Janet. Thanks so much. All right. So that's Janet Reitman. And here she is in uh, RollingStone.com, Inside Gitmo, America's Shame. And we'll be right back with Mark Thornton in just a sec. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at Audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. All right, y'all. Check it out. I got Mark Thornton on the line. One of my many buddies over at the Mises Institute. That's the Ludwig von Mises Institute, headquarters of the Austrian School of Economics in America. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing, Mark? Hey, Scott. It's great to be back with you. I'm doing great. Um, I don't know if you caught this, but bestcolleges.com just ranked the Mises Institute as the ninth most influential think tank in the country. You know, I did see that, and I thought, ninth? Come on, it's got to be better than that. But still, um, making that top ten, that's that's absolutely great. And there can be no doubting that it's at least ninth. 
Um, and hey, well, Scott, I should give credit Scott, to the others. There are a lot of very influential uh, institutes around, but you guys get work done. There's no doubt about it. Well, exactly, Scott. And the thing about the ranking was the bigger your budget, the more influential you were in this poll. Mm-hmm. That's uh, but you the Mises Institute has a very small budget, so that actually hurt us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, someone ought to do an algorithm and adjust for that. There you go. I'm sure somebody in your audience. Hey, you're an economist. Do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> what are you guys? What are you Mises guys? Figure it out, man. No, I know you guys don't all do charts and curves. You know better than that. Um, <laughs> so listen, we got a lot of important stuff to talk about. Here's the thing that uh, people unfamiliar need to know. Uh, well, there are a few, I guess. But one thing that you need to know about Mark Thornton is he was one of the very, very first guys. I guess second. It was Robert Blumen and Mark at the Mises Institute, were the first economists to call the housing bubble back in 2005, I guess it was, maybe 2004. And um, and Mark is also uh, the author of what uh, he calls the skyscraper thesis about bubbles in the economy. And, uh, and you've been making a lot of remarks about that. And then I guess... Um, I'll work into the uh, into the discussion, the recent news of of the the Fed's announcement that they're raising the federal funds rate a little bit here uh, later on. But why don't you go ahead and tell them what you mean about the skyscraper boom and the skyscraper theory here? Well, Scott, it it goes back 100 years, and it's the correlation of the building of a world record-setting skyscraper in terms of how tall it is and an ensuing world economic crisis. And so the world records are correlated with the Panic of 1907, America's Great Depression, the stagflation of the 1970s, the the crash of Bretton Woods and, and going off the gold standard, and then more recently with the tech stock bubble, the housing bubble, and now... In Saudi Arabia, they're building a new world record-setting skyscraper out in the desert that's supposed to be a kilometer tall, smashing the previous record. Wow. Okay, now hold it right there for a second. That all sounds like a lot of very correlated correlations. However, there are 10 million cranks with 10 million theories about why markets go up and down. So why should anybody listen to yours or consider yours different? Well, that's what I first thought, too. But then I also realized that uh, skyscrapers are a telltale symptom of what is going on in the economy. And so when you see these world record-setting skyscrapers, you also see abnormally low or artificially low interest rates driving the economy into a boom. And so what's happening in these booms is all sorts of new technology, firms merging and becoming much bigger, and also the price of land gets significantly higher. And high land prices combined with low interest rates encourages this building of world record-setting skyscrapers and all the new technology that has to come online to make that work economically and profitably. And, of course, now I've also been writing about how this skyscraper curse that, you know, it seems to, it's over in the desert in Saudi Arabia, but we're also seeing it around the country. And so in Auburn, 
Little Auburn, Alabama is building its tallest building ever. In Asheville, North Carolina, where I was recently, they're building uh, two or three buildings that will set records for Asheville. Mm -hmm. The same thing I saw in Toronto, Canada, and that people, friends, and colleagues are reporting uh, from around the country. And so, so what you're saying is good... this isn't palm reading or something where you go, oh, yeah, you know, you have a long lifeline or this or that. You're saying there's new money being pumped right into the commercial real estate market. And this is where it goes. It's it's literally and figuratively a spike, a artificially generated spike on the chart. Yes. And it all it all uh, lines up very nicely with the Austrian theory of the business cycle where the Federal Reserve or the central bank has artificially low interest rates uh, trying to stimulate the economy. And it is stimulating the economy, but it's creating bad investments, investments that are going to turn out to be not as profitable as everybody once thought once the ensuing bust starts. And it seems to me like there are signs in the economy now where we're reaching uh, that pinnacle of the boom. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, so... um... I think a lot of people have seen the big short. If you haven't, it's for free right now at the Pirate Bay. Uh, just stop by there, use QBitTorrent, uh, no toolbars or anything. It's a great little program and you can watch the big short. And that's a, a great story of what I could, I couldn't help but thinking while I was watching it that that could have been me. If only I had called Mark Thornton and said, will you teach me how to invest in shorting the people who are investing in real estate right now? Cause I'm hip with your theory. I think that you're, you know, the skyscraper curse, there's possibly, not only is there no doubt about it that you're right, but I suspect even that the Fed reads Thornton and that when they see the biggest skyscrapers in the world being built, that's what spooked them and made them raise the federal funds rate by a quarter of a point. What do you think of that? <laughs> that's a good one. Um, I've heard that The Big Short is a, is a great movie, but listeners should realize that it's it's fiction. It's it's not true. Uh, it's a you know a, a certain amalgam of the facts, but where they try to blame capitalism for the problem, but the blame really lies with you the know Federal it's not Reserve. too lousy with that. I, have you seen it yet? No, I haven't. Yeah. I no, you know it's really. I mean, they they certainly blame the system, um, and they say you know it's all corrupt and whatever. But it is not um, you know Matt Damon and ridiculous kind of Democrat kind of thing there i mean they they definitely don't cite you guys as as they should they don't explain you know that the fed is the lender of last resort throughout all this and and what we would have had them write into the script but everything else in it i think is is pretty copacetic you know i think you'd be surprised and dig it i think that's the only tragedy really is that they don't explain they don't really break down here's the role of the fed in it all which would have been well, with the crowning achievement of the production you know well with that recommendation i'll definitely see it yeah. uh definitely planned on seeing it but i i've been told that they tried to lay the blame on deregulation or you know those sorts of things so mm. and and all movies are at least part you know fiction so uh, you know that's where it lays but the that's the the most important thing of all uh when we look out at reality is that the fed is causing these problems. Uh, they don't really know what they're doing. Um, I would like to think that they're reading my stuff, but 
Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the case. And, uh, and they, they have no idea of what they're doing right now. Well, where do you think uh, we are in the cycle right now? Because, you know, I, I remember, this is how little I know about this stuff. I, I remember, um, um, re, uh, listening to the audiobook of For a New Liberty that Murray Rothbard wrote back in the 70s, where he talks about in there how they always try to let the air out of the bubble. But that doesn't work. They always pop it. And then it always leads to a giant <laughs> crash. And uh, I can even picture where I was driving on the 101 in L.A. as I was listening to this. And uh, this is what I always think of. As soon as they start raising that uh, federal funds rate, even just a little bit, you better run like hell or start betting against them. Anyway, hold tight. I'm sorry. We've got to take this break. We'll be right back with Mark Thornton to find out where he thinks we are in this terrible government-generated boom-bust cycle after this. Hey, I'm Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. All right, y'all, welcome back to the show. You know, that's another thing I like about that movie, The Big Short, is I like Steve Carell. And uh, he was terrible in the Noah's Ark thing and a couple other things. I was glad to see him have a chance to do some serious acting and do it well. I like that guy, man. That's a good thing. So, yeah. Uh, talking with Mark Thornton, the great Mark Thornton from the Mises Institute. We're talking about... It's not the business cycle. It's the government-generated boom-bust cycle in our economy. And uh, my overly convoluted uh, question before the break was something along the lines of, where do you think we are now in that cycle? Is it time to bet everything we have, assuming we have anything at all, against Goldman Sachs? Well, Scott, I'm not a financial advisor, but I can tell you that all this money pumping by the central bank is resulting in things like us consuming our savings, um, male investments uh, in the economy, and, of course, higher asset prices in the economy. And so I think 2016 uh, is going to be a year where the economy is producing less, which means the likelihood is very high of a recession going into 2016. And because we're producing less with all this money bubbling around, we should expect uh, probably higher price inflation uh, in the economy in 2016. And I also believe that asset prices in terms of stocks and bonds, that the value of those has been greatly um, inflated and that we should see a negative, a negative environment for those assets in 2016. And if you look at individual stocks, uh, you know, Google and Apple and, and all these high-riding companies, uh, social media companies, uh, they've, I think they've started to peak and roll over. And so, uh, I see negative, uh, 
outlook for uh, for assets, uh, a negative outlook in the economy, uh, higher price inflation, and probably higher uh, precious metal prices as well in 2016. Hmm. And now, so as far as uh, the raising of the federal funds rate, does that mean that the Fed is spooked, that, oops, maybe we quantitative eased a bit too much new credit, and so now we got to ease back, and then... Do I, am I right about, am I paraphrasing Rothbard right that that means a collapse coming? That there's no soft landing. That means there's a pop on the horizon. Well, I think the pop on the horizon is, is there no matter what the Fed does. You know, the Fed kept interest rates at zero for seven years. That's never happened in human history. And so we're in unprecedented territory. Uh, here and they, the Fed's been saying they were going to raise interest rates. They've been saying they're going to normalize interest rates for years now. And so I felt, I feel that they were, uh, pushed into a corner and they reacted with this minuscule quarter of a percent interest rate, um, hike, um, more out of public relations, uh, and saving face, uh, than anything else. And In other Jenny words. They're they're expanding bank credit so much that the quarter of a point hardly makes a difference, at, you know, relatively speaking. Is that right? Yeah, and and basically what that amounts to is that they're paying uh, banks more on their excess reserves. So the banks uh, got an immediate uh, increase in the money that they get for holding money at the Federal Reserve. But my savings account still says that the interest rate is one one hundredth of one uh, percent interest on my savings account. So they're not helping the savings class that they've been busy destroying uh, for the last seven years. They've been just basically backing the big banks and uh, and bankrolling them. And they're the ones that should have paid uh, because they're the ones that benefited from the boom. Uh, and But the Fed has backed up these big banks. Uh, to the detriment of labor and the savings class and people trying to build a pension and a retirement fund. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm reminded of this book that I have but never read called The Tao of Capital that was written by an Austrian. And basically the point, according to the back of the book <laughs> that I should have read, is that, hey, you know, all us libertarians, we know this. Virtually everything the government does amounts to a distortion in the market. So if you want to make money, you just bet against their distortions, and they're easy as hell to see. And everybody agrees with what you just said, because it's the obvious truth that none of the systemic problems underlying uh, you know, the causes of the financial crisis from last time have been fixed, whether it's uh, Federal Reserve-backed bank credit expansion or whether it's all the so-called derivatives markets and all the different, you know, double-blind bets and this, that, the other thing that people make where they created these trillions of dollars worth of bubbles the last time. We all know that all the institutional flaws are all still there. So seems like I'm reminded of the uh, the... Uh, little uh, tchotchke on my dad's desk. It says, if you're so smart, why ain't you rich? <laughs> I'm thinking that maybe I'm in the wrong business here, Mark. Maybe well, I should God, at least you... try the, try out the shorting market, if I could save up a couple hundred bucks to get in there. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's not easy. Uh, I reviewed the Dow of Capitalism on Mises.org, and it's an interesting and informative book, no doubt. Uh, but it lays out the hazards of investing in general. 
And so it's a, it's a hazardous business. And I would much prefer if people could just save money uh, in a bank in terms of gold and see that pot of money rising throughout their lifetime and into retirement. Uh, but we can't do that because we have fiat money that depreciates and uh, we've got banks that are unstable and it's all because of the Federal Reserve. Yeah. And so you have to keep an eye on the Federal Reserve uh, when you're investing in an economy. You can try to bet against the Federal Reserve, but it's a very powerful institution as well. And so uh, the more you know, the better and the less you rely on the Fed other than, you know, catching the wave. Uh, you know, via the skyscraper index or something like that, and um, and and hedging your bets against government and against the Fed, um, you know, for the long term investor. Yeah, um, yeah, because that's the thing, right? Everybody, uh, you know, looks at the interest rate when they're doing their investing, but it's the Austrians are the only ones who understand the significance of having police power set the damn thing. Whereas everybody else just takes it as the normal function of the economy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's no question about it. Um, this is a hazardous world in terms of investing, and this is a, a very hazardous time. And the general impression out there is that the market has been going up for seven years, and that's going to continue, and that home prices have firmed, and they're going to continue to go up. Uh, but you have to realize that, What's generated higher stock prices, which generated higher bond prices, which has generated higher land prices and higher home prices and all the rest, has been all this funny money from the Fed, the quantitative easing programs, and that, that is, that's a, a weapon that the Fed uses that does not last infinitely because ultimately what the Fed is doing in rigging these higher prices is that it's misallocating resources systemically throughout the economy. And eventually we're going to realize, and I think this is going to come in 2016, where the, the economy is simply not as productive uh, as we thought it was going to be, and that production in the U.S. economy and uh, is going to go down in 2016. It's not going to rise by any significant matter. And we're going to join uh, Japan with, uh, in a recession. China, which says it's growing at 7%, but nobody believes it. Russia's in a recession. The Middle East is, of course, as you know very well, a total mess. And Europe's also in a recession. Canada's also having trouble. Brazil is a nightmare case uh, where their federal funds rate is now 15%. So the landscape from the vista of the U.S. is still okay, but looking forward, um, you see a lot of problems out there. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm sorry we're out of time with that. I'll have to let you go. But I, as always, I really appreciate your time on the show, Mark. Hey, th- uh, thanks, Scott. I love be doing your show. All right. Appreciate it. All right, y'all. That is the great Mark Thornton, Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S, Mises.org for the Austrian school. And we'll be right back in just a minute with Brad Hoff on some new Hillary emails. Good stuff here. Hey, y'all. Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. 
Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com Hey, y'all, guess what? You can now order transcripts of any interview I've done for the incredibly reasonable price of two and a half bucks each. Listen, finding a good transcriptionist is near impossible, but I've got one now. Just go to scotthorton.org slash transcripts, enter the name and date of the interview you want written up, click the PayPal button, and I'll have it in your email in 72 hours max. You don't need a PayPal account to do this. Man, I'm really going to have to learn how to talk more good. That's scotthorton.org slash transcripts. All right, y'all. Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Uh, next up is Brad Hoff from LevantReport.com. Welcome back to the show, Brad. How are you? Great to be back on, Scott. Appreciate it. Very happy to have you here. Great new piece at LevantReport.com. It'll be running tomorrow on Antiwar.com. New Hillary emails reveal propaganda, executions, and the coveting of Libyan oil and gold. That's, again, LevantReport.com and tomorrow at Antiwar.com. And, um, yeah, boy, I'll tell you what, what a story. You you went digging through a new batch of emails, and you make it really easy for me. Admissions of rebel war crimes, special ops trainers, Al-Qaeda, uh, Western nations and Libyan oil, the absurd Viagra mass rape story, and uh, the Frank and Gaddafi's gold. So, um, thanks so much for doing all my work and making me not have to reread the thing and take good notes. Uh, let's start with <laughs> rebel war crimes. What did you find about rebel war crimes in, in the latest batch of Hillary emails, Brad? Well, sure. I guess there's not a whole lot to do on uh, New Year's morning because, of course, the State Department decided it would dump its last uh, Hillary Clinton email release on uh, oh, about 5 p.m. New Year's Eve, hoping no one would go through them. And so far, uh, mainstream media like CNN, they're just covering all kinds of, uh, you know, silly little aspects of the emails, like how Hillary looks in certain Facebook photos or, uh, you know, State Department gossip. Um, Daily Caller actually uh, picked up on the uh, Viagra story. Uh, Associated Press was the first to hit upon this uh, amazing uh, oil and gold email, which we'll talk about later. Uh, but there was a, a detail I uncovered while sifting through these that I didn't think would be covered by mainstream media because it requires some context uh, that they would fail to give the public. It's a March 27, 2011 email. Uh, it's an intelligence brief uh, sent by close Hillary advisor uh, Sidney Blumenthal, who's like, uh, I don't know, his own one-man, you know, uh, behind-the-scenes uh, PI intelligence gatherer, fixer, uh, longtime fixer, advisor for the Clintons. Uh, so he emails Hillary with an intelligence update, and this is uh, in the midst of uh, the Libya conflict. And he tells her that uh, a rebel commander he was close to, speaking in strict confidence, told him that uh, – Rebel militias in Libya continue, here's a quote, continue to summar, summarily execute all foreign mercenaries captured in the fighting. And, of course, if you look back at all the European reporting and international reporting at that time, uh, foreign mercenaries is but a euphemism used within the rebel opposition uh, for black Libyans as well as sub-Saharan African migrants 
who numbered and potentially uh, over a million to a couple of million in Libya out of the six million um, total population. Hey, this is a very important point, and people should know that, you know, this is corroborated back in time, back at the time. Uh, you know, nothing that, that Brad just said is is groundbreaking. It's what we already know, that this was the the rumor behind all the pogroms against the blacks in Libya was that, you know, hey, if Gaddafi had a few Tuareg mercenaries working for him in his private Gestapo, then therefore every non-Arab or non-Berber in the country is somehow a mercenary working for Gaddafi. Uh, what a bunch of crap on its face, but that was the prevailing wisdom among the rebel death squads who were doing the massacring and the ethnic cleansing. And, exactly. uh, and that was the story back then in 2011 and 12, and there's just no dispute about it. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just want to make sure that people know that that's not just something that you're coming up with here. Right, you're right. And, and everything I covered um, in, in this particular article, yeah, as you stated, um, has long been uh, exhaustively, uh, exhaustively documented. I think yesterday you were talking about to Gareth Porter about the big Washington Times series of, mm-hmm. uh, about Libya. And so a lot of this is well known, but now we have yet more internal State Department proof uh, uh, straight up to uh, Secretary uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, who knew all of this was going on and yet uh, continued, um, and her policies continued uh, to encourage it. Uh, But let me just quickly read from Human Rights Watch uh, later that summer. And Human Rights Watch is politically compromised itself because it's it's not neutral. Uh, But this is from uh, Human Rights Watch's Fred Abrahams, and it was very clear at the time what foreign mercenaries meant, again, Foreign mercenaries, you know, being described as uh, being subject to field executions in this uh, Hillary Clinton email. Uh, Abraham said, "Dark-skinned Libyans and Sub-Saharan Africans face particular risks because rebel forces and other armed groups have often considered them pro-Gaddafi mercenaries from other African countries. We've seen violent attacks and killings of these people in areas where the National Transitional Council took control." End quote. And there's actual, actually a lot of uh, documentation on how the uh, NTC, which was actually handpicked by the West as a provisional government uh, for the first uh, year um, into the conflict and after Gaddafi's fall, uh, we do know that their, their policies right away were very um, anti-migrant African, anti-black Libyan. Uh, this community had long been scapegoated uh, by Libyans for uh, economic problems uh, Libya had gone through after uh, 2000. Cause Gaddafi was kind of this uh, pro-African Union, pan-Africanist, open borders type guy. Uh, you know, his dream of pan-Arabism had, had kind of died, and he made himself into a, a kind of pro-Africa, pan-African guy. And he did a lot of things uh, to improve uh, the region. Uh, but for this reason, uh, it created a lot of resentment uh, between your Arab Libyans and uh, especially migrant workers. There were a lot of uh, a lot of sub-Saharan Africans engaged in all of Gaddafi's grand uh, construction projects, and this created some some conflict in terms of who gets what jobs, as well as uh, uh, you know the amount of money he's sending to other countries, uh, you know, which uh, created created some economic resentment. And so that's some of the context to this. Mm-hmm. 
I want to mention real quick too that people can look up. I mean, it sounds insane, but uh, if you just look up RT covered it at the time, filmed it at the time, black Libyans rounded up and kept in cages at the zoo, taunted with Libyan flags shoved down their throats and uh, being abused, uh, shown on Russian TV there. And it was not disputed at the time or anything as being, uh, you know, fake Russian propaganda or anything like that. And I'd also refer you to uh, David Enders reporting from McClatchy newspapers at the time where he interviewed many, many victims of mass rapes at the refugee camp where the rebels would come in the middle of the night and round up the women and hold them at gunpoint and rape them. And, you know, unlike all the scare stories about Gaddafi, this was David Enders vetted them himself, a real journalist on the ground, not a bunch of rumor mongering by Max Blumenthal's dad about Viagra being passed out to a mass army of rapists and this, you know, unbelievable, right. like as a war tactic, like they're, they're stopping the killing so that they can rape in the middle of battles. Right. Yeah, that was one of the most outlandish claims of <laughs> any war of the past decade or so. And of course, uh, there's a lot of outlandish claims. Uh, but the, uh, the big, uh, Gaddafi, uh, Viagra fueled mass rape story, I mean, I remember CNN devoting a lot of time to it, a lot of time to it. Um, well, and I remember uh, I remember listening to right wing AM radio in L.A., where the guy's saying even Susan Rice says that it's true. So that's how you know that it is. Yeah, and we've had a lot of documentation on this story, and that long ago human rights groups uh, debunked the whole thing. I mean, people on the ground debunking it. Uh, but what this what this latest um, email release confirms, it, it seems, is uh, that it actually originated with. Max Blumenthal, he knowingly took these Sydney bizarre, or Max? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The Sydney. father, right? Yeah. I'm sorry, Sydney. I apologize, Sydney Blumenthal. Yeah. So it, it seems that whatever outlandish, bizarre conspiracy theory floating around the op- Libyan opposition rumor mill, you know, as long as it painted Gaddafi and his supporters as absolute monsters. And so long as it served the cause of uh, yet another intervention, you know, network news just uh, took it on its face. So, yeah, it, it seems like the new information here is that um, the whole bizarre hoax did originate with Blumenthal, uh, as well as Hillary Clinton itself, because, of course, this was floated up, as you said, to Ambassador to the U.N. Susan Rice, who actually presented it, uh, you know, at the U.N. Security Council. You know, the International Criminal Court was... Uh, was looking into it and uh, other bizarre stories as well uh, that were floated by Blumenthal and I'm assuming Hillary herself. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting little study, isn't it, in how something so absurd, well, it's the big lie kind of thing, right? The, the immediate presumption is, well, God, that must be true because nobody would tell such a stupid lie. So, you know, it's just like... <laughs> right. It's just like the cops framing up that guy in the Netflix documentary. Like, come on, what do you think, that the cops would do that? Yeah, of course they would. <laughs> but it just seems incredible. And so, I, you know, if, if mass Viagra rape sounds incredible, then making up a story like that is even more so. Exactly. And I linked to all the... I linked all the new released emails in the article, and people just need to go read this for themselves because it is... It is, uh, in a dark kind of way, entertaining reading unto itself to see what really goes on, uh, you know, behind the halls of power, so to speak. And I also blame big media. I blame mainstream media in part uh, for some of the things, some of the atrocities, uh, you know, that happened um, 
you know, against people accused of being Gaddafi loyalists in Libya, uh, because you know it's the same story with Syria, as you know. Mainstream media re- relies exclusively on these opposition spokesmen, not even really knowing who they are. No fact checking, no verification. You know, whatever an opposition rebel spokesman says, uh, the media ran with it. It's the case with Libya. It's the case of Syria, as you said, no matter how bizarre the story. And the whole, quote-unquote, foreign mercenaries uh, rumor, again, foreign mercenaries which were linked by the opposition to black Libyans and sub-Saharan migrant workers, uh, this was a story 100% fed um, from the ranks of the rebel opposition, uh, and it was just echoed in international media to the point where people really began to associate any black Libyan um, with, uh, you know, a, a Gaddafi sniper, a Gaddafi killer, uh, a Gaddafi, a pro-Gaddafi insurgent, and this just was absolutely false. And it led to uh, acts of ethnic cleansing and genocide, um, you know, that, that wiped out entire towns like this city uh, near Misrata called Tewerga, a town of uh, 25,000 to 30,000 mostly black and, and quote-unquote dark-skinned Libyans. Uh, the town entirely vanished by August 2011, and this is really well documented by the BBC, um, Amnesty International aid organizations, and sadly it wasn't really covered much uh, in American press. Yeah, I mean, and just think about the alternative reality where it was. Hey, look, everybody, Obama and Hillary, they went and overthrew Gaddafi, and look what happened. They empowered the Libyan KKK in their massive Rosewood massacre. I mean, that's, you know, Obama as Grand Dragon. They didn't even have to say oops. They didn't even have to explain it away because it wasn't even reported at all. Yeah, I think this is probably the most under and unreported um, story of this of this whole affair. And I would strongly recommend two books, uh, one by uh, a Canadian anthropologist named Maximilian Forte. It's called Slouching Towards Cert, NATO's War on Libya and Africa. And he's got this exhaustive documentation uh, the genocidal policies of uh, rebel militants against uh, Libya's black community. I'd also rec- uh, recommend, if people want to look more into the oil and gold issue, um, you know, as well as the idea that... Uh, well, wait, now West- let's get back to the oil and gold thing in a second here. Sure, sure. Because actually we went through the break, and I want to make sure the live audience has a chance to hear that whole discussion uh, as well today here. But uh, I, let me go back to uh, the special ops trainers, uh, Western intervention right. in the country beginning when? Oh, wait, you know what? Actually, hold that one because I wanted to ask one uh, based off of the last discussion, which was, uh, is there anything, you didn't mention it in here or anything, but is there anything that you noticed in this new batch of emails or any of these emails you've gone digging through that discuss the Tuaregs and the spreading of the war to Mali when Gaddafi's actual hired mercenary uh, Tuaregs went home in defeat but brought their weapons with them, then that's what turned their, uh, you know, they had basically a pseudo kind of autonomy from the south, but with all their new weapons, they decided to wage a war for independence, which then ended up, of course, being hijacked by the jihadists and uh, turning into the Mali War of 2013 and all of that. But uh, I wonder if if anyone is warning Hillary in any of these emails that, like, geez, boss, the war's already, you know, blowing back and spreading on down into Mali here. 
No, you're exactly right. I didn't see anything, and uh, I was looking for very particular um, you know, search words and keywords, yeah. and that's not something I searched. You're exactly right, though. And But, you know, I don't know that they would care because um, all of this uh, helps uh, the increased presence and influence of AFRICOM, frankly. Right, of course. Yeah, they, and hey, they got new drone bases going in, in in Cameroon. They got troops in Cameroon, new drone bases in Chad and in Niger. So, no doubt yeah, about you it. You know, no one says Gaddafi uh, was a good guy, but one thing he had going for him was this uh, this idea of uh, political and economic independence, and uh, this was uh, seen as a big threat. And uh, you know, the first thing that happened after the uh, national Transition Council was put in power and power after uh, you know Gaddafi's uh, being on the run and his uh, field execution. Uh, first thing that happened was yeah, Africom established a major presence in four, uh, four at least four new African countries. So you know I, I don't know that Hillary and her ilk would uh, would really even care about the uh, resulting domino effect of the intervention she led. But you're exactly right about Mali. And, of course, the, the region continues to be just in, in chaos and uh, a mess, which is another thing uh, uh, politicians yeah, my, and the media have completely ignored. In my hypothetical, I phrased it all wrong. It should have been more like, good news, boss. The war is already spreading on down to Mali. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So um, now we, we want to talk all about the gold uh, and the independence, as you were mentioning uh, but but first, talk to me about what you learned here about the special ops in the very beginning of uh, Western, you know, NATO military intervention on the ground. Because, well, and the real question is, this is before or after the UN resolution? Yeah, the same email um, that talks about the uh, summary exec- uh, summary executions of uh, uh, so-called foreign mercenaries uh, talks about the presence of Western special forces inside Libya within less than a month of the initial protest taking place. And you can read it, um, you know, read it in black and white. It's right there. Talk about British, French, as well as Egyptian. And we know, of course, Egyptian, Egypt has always just been a sort of extension of, uh, you know, the uh, American military. Um, but uh, they were training, already training um, anti-Gaddafi fighters along the uh, the border, Egyptian-Libyan border, we're talking, uh, you know, the Hillary email identifies this as taking place within less than a month of, um, we're talking the very first protests that broke out in mid-February, and there's mention of training happening in the Benghazi suburbs. This is incredibly early. You know, uh, analysts have long known there were um, special ops trainers. Well, help um, me on the timeline. This is how early compared to the story of the impending Benghazi massacre and the overt intervention by NATO air power. Well, I want to say the very first, uh, you know, recorded protests uh, in Benghazi were is something like February 15th, February 17th of uh, 2011. And this email was sent uh, March 27th. And the email speaks as if uh, this training has been, uh, is now entrenched and has been going on for some time. And so, uh, you know, there wasn't really a big, you know, a kind of, uh, you know, city-to-city uprising that was much reported in international media, you know, to the latter half of, of February. And here we have uh, Blumenthal in this intelligence update um, in the latter half of March saying, yeah, we got special uh, forces, British, French especially, 
um, training these guys. So that's that's very early. That that seems very very early. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then at that the, point, are they also saying is is it Blumenthal telling her that? Yeah, and it seems like there's just no denying that these are Al Qaeda guys. Uh, he's at that point he's voicing concern, admitting that quote radical terrorist groups such as the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group and Al Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb are infiltrating um, the National Libyan Council and its militias and its military command. Yeah, so at the same time, he's acknowledging special ops guys are training these these militants. He's also saying, yeah, we know Al-Qaeda is infiltrating them, and it's the same story, and this has been, well, better documented, you know, um, in, in multiple stories mm-hmm. since then. But this this seems very, very early by anyone's estimation. There was a lot of speculation as to how early the so-called, you know, popular uprising you know, got militarized and got Western special ops trainers on the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one quote from the same email says that um, these special operatives were, quote, overseeing the transfer of weapons and supplies to the rebels, including a seemingly endless supply of AK-47 assault rifles and ammunition. So, again, we see a militarization of this. We're talking within weeks after any protest, and not just that, but special ops on the ground in Benghazi suburbs, overseeing a, quote, seemingly endless supply of AK-47 assault rifles. That's quite early. And identifying them as the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, a.k.a. the Libyan veterans of al-Qaeda in Iraq from the last war. Yep, exactly, exactly. And And, it's just like that other email about Syria where the guy says, hey, boss, look, um, al-Qaeda's on our side in this one. And it's a news story about Ayman al-Zawahiri endorsing the revolution in Syria and the famous uh, CBS clip of her saying, are we supporting al-Qaeda in Syria? It comes just a couple of days later. When that's her excuse for not doing more, she admits that that's who she would be at least in effect fighting for. Exactly. And, and yeah, these emails just offer more proof that the, they were very much in the know. Very much in the know as to as to uh, what direction this and what direction this whole thing would go. Okay, now and back course, to the real back to the real motives here because we saved that till the end. But now I'm afraid we're going to run out of time. Uh, tell me about Gaddafi's gold and what's it to Sarkozy? And, well, yeah, of course, uh, Libya has always been very resource rich, which is probably why you know we hear about Libya in the news and. Uh, and there was an intervention there in the first place, as opposed to some sub-Saharan African country. Um, but there's this astounding email that people should should uh, should go see in my article. It's from April 2011, another Intel brief uh, from Blumenthal. Uh, we know that the French were instrumental in proposing UN Security Council Resolution uh, 1973, the no-fly zone. And, of course, the big claim was, oh, protecting civilians, we care about Libyans. Um, but this particular email, this particular intel brief, identifies French President Sarkozy's real motives. And it talks about uh, wanting to cut into Libyan oil, um, Libyan inf- uh, uh, French influence in North Africa, um, eyeing Gaddafi's gold. Nowhere in it, um, you know, do, I don't even think the, the word civilians comes up in the email, which is meant to be a summary of what is driving France and NATO in Libya. But the focal point is talk of Gaddafi's 143 tons of gold bullion, as well as a similar amount of silver. And there's a direct quote that says uh, in the email, according to knowledgeable individuals, this quantity of gold and silver is valued at more than $7 billion. French intel officers discovered the plan 
to introduce an, a gold-backed African dinar, which was seen as a, a as a threat to the French franc and the region. And the email actually says, quote, this was one of the factors that influenced President Sarkozy's decision to commit France to the attack on Libya. Propping so up demand the, for the French franc. Yes, Wait, exactly. But don't it's they basically. have euros there? They sell francs? Uh, and, and, and I suppose the, I, su- I suppose it's a particular, uh, it's a particular type of African, uh, currency, uh, it's, it's, uh, called, it's the French franc and the, the, uh, initials are CFA. Mm-hmm. It's one of the prime, you know, currencies, I guess, in North Africa and all the old French colonial areas of Africa. I see. And that's an actual term that's used over and over again in this email, Francophone Africa. Right. We can't have we can't have someone uh, you know asserting independent influence, and this this document reads like just an old school you know 19th century Africa uh, scramble for Africa colonial document. It's amazing. People just need to go sit and read it. It's 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 pretty mind blowing. Yep. So forget the high minded responsibility to protect doctrine. It's just old fashioned greed and it's currency wars and it's the threat of Gaddafi's uh uh. Gold and his big, uh, you know, Pan-African Union type projects. Yep. All right. Well, thanks very much, Brad. Great work here. Well, thanks, Scott. Uh, enjoyed talking about it. People just need to go read these documents. Pretty mind blowing. Mainstream all the media links are is down. There. Yes, sir. Mainstream media is downplaying it all, but gosh, just go read this gold, this this document about France and uh, Gaddafi's gold. It's unreal. I'm going to read it right now. Thanks very much, Brad. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Scott. All right, so that's the great Brad Hoff. He's over at LevantReport.com. Great piece of journalism here. New Hillary emails reveal propaganda, executions, and the coveting of Libyan oil and gold. Oh, we barely got to talk about the oil at all, right? Uh, go and read it. It's at LevantReport.com. It'll be on Antiwar.com tomorrow.